Lord Jesus, we ask that you would just help us to see your glory this morning. We want to know you. We want to see you as you are today, revealed in your word. We know, Lord, that if we were to see you clearly, we would not be able to comprehend it. We would not be able to handle the weight of it. But we ask for just a glimpse and just for just for a taste, because we know, Lord, that if we just see a little bit of who you are today, it's enough to radically change our hearts and change, change our lives and to exact our obedience to you. We ask that you would bring us into submission to you this morning to acknowledge your reign and your rule and your kingship and your lordship, make that a reality in our hearts and in our lives, cause us to bow before you this morning and to seek your mercy and to love you, and to fear you, and to trust you, and to glorify you as you deserve to be. We ask that you would do this for your own name's sake. Amen. You may be seated. What awesome songs, huh? Awesome scriptures. What an awesome passage we have with us this morning. I hope you had a chance to read through it before you came in today. I was asking my dad last night, I was telling him, it's amazing that you will let me preach on a passage like this, that you will let me preach on the exaltation of Christ. And you know what he said? He said it's a gift, and it is a gift, and it's a blessing and an opportunity greater than I can possibly begin to imagine. Over the past several weeks, we've been working through a series um, it's called For Love and Glory, where we've been looking at several significant passages in Scripture and we've been exploring the, the biblical theology, the theme of God's love and God's glory through all of these different instances, and it led up to the resurrection of Christ on Easter Sunday. Last week we did the ascension of Christ, and today we're doing the exaltation of Christ, and this is the last sermon in that series. And I can't tell you any better way to end the series on love and glory. There's no greater way to end it than with the glory of the exaltation, because there is no greater glory. It's pure glory. It's glory incarnate, the most glory of all. And this is where it has to end. This is the grand finale. This is the final episode. This is the part we've all been waiting for. And I'm going to be honest with you, I actually have a lot of anxiety right now. In many ways, I'm, I'm kind of stressed to preach this because I know that no matter what I do, no matter how good the sermon is, it's never going to do justice to the exaltation of Christ. And I don't think that any sermon would, whether it's preached by, by Spurgeon or by Whitfield or by Edwards, nothing comes close to this. And so I need you to forgive me before we even begin, and I want you to be gracious with me and to see through my poor preaching and my lame examples um, and my bad structure and the lack of eloquence and the lack of prayer, everything that goes into this being a sermon by a man, I need you to look through and just see the exaltation of Christ. Just see what the scriptures say and be gripped by it. What we see of Jesus in the gospel, so we just finished the gospel of John, is a real historical man. A man just like you and me, a man that has flesh and bones and eyes and brains and hair, who has a human soul and a human spirit, who lived a life just like the rest of us. He was born as a baby, grew up with his parents, went to school, worked as a contractor, he did construction work, paid his bills, studied theology. And it was this historical man that, that we read about in the narratives of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And I remember when I was, I was writing this sermon, I was, I was at Starbucks. And for some reason, I go there a lot to write sermons. 
And I was there, and I was looking out at, at all of these people in the coffee shop, and I was thinking to myself, you know, sometimes I think, what would it be like if I wasn't a Christian? And I can't really think of that because the only reason I see things the way I do is because of God's grace in the first place. But I'm looking out and, and seeing all these people, I'm thinking, if I were them, even if I didn't believe what the Bible said about Christ, I would still want to know more about this person. Even if I didn't believe all of the miracles that the gospel writer said that he did, or the fact that he really did die and rise again, or that he ascended into heaven, that he's exalted. Now, even if I didn't know about all of that and all of the prophecies, just the things that I can observe that this man has done in history is enough to compel me to want to know more about him. That somehow this man convinced enough people that he was God that they were willing to die for him. That people say that this man raised the dead back to life. That he healed the sick and that he gave sight to the blind. That this man started the greatest movement in human history, the church. And that the third of the world's population today believes that this man really did do all of the things that the Bible attests to. Just that, I was thinking, would be enough for me to want to know more about him. And that is just the beginning. You see, in, in theology, theologians often delineate two states of Christ. The first state is his humiliation, and the second state is his exaltation. And everything that I just talked to you about was everything that Christ did in his first state, in his humiliation. Not even in his second, in the exaltation. And just as Jesus was then, and the world knows him to be, that is glorious. All of those things that I told you are glorious. But the glory in his second state, in the exaltation, is infinitely, infinitely greater. And that's what we find here in this passage. It starts with the exaltation first. If you don't have your Bibles open to Philippians 2, please turn there now. We're going to start actually in verse 6 and then read through verse 11. Because Paul delineates these two states of Christ. He goes first for the exaltation and then for the exaltation. So we must start there. Jeremy came up to me before the sermon. You know, he, he was doing the reading. He was going to read verses 9 through 11. He said, you know, shouldn't we read verses you know, 6 through 11, because there's a therefore in verse 9. You always want to start and know what the therefore is there for, right? Um, I asked him to, to hold off on it because we're going to read it right now, so please get your Bibles open and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 6. Paul writes, this is the humiliation now, Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is his humiliation. It includes his incarnation, his suffering, his death, and his burial. That's everything that the world admits that Jesus did for sure, and that is glorious. But look at what's greater. Verses 9 through 11, he says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
It's his resurrection. It's his ascension. It's his session. It's his seating down at the right hand of God, and it's return again. That is his exaltation. That's the second state of Christ. That's the state that he has today, and that's the state that we're going to look at this morning. So how is Jesus now? How is Jesus this morning? Did you ask him when you got up? Maybe you asked your wife or your spouse or each other when you came in, how are you this morning? Have you asked, how is Jesus this morning? This is how he is this morning. He's exalted this morning. Let me show you how Jesus is today, how our Lord is this Sunday morning. We'll talk about first who he is, this exalted Jesus, Jesus as he is today, and then second, we'll talk about you and him. We'll talk about what your relationship is like with him. So first, Jesus as he is today. Please go back to verse 9 with me. We're going to look at the first part first. Therefore, God exalted him. Who is it that exalted him? Who is it that exalted Jesus? God exalted Jesus. Who greater to be exalted by than God? Think of one person in human history that could possibly be greater than God. You know, I was trying to think of an example for this. And it's hard. We, you know, we idolize sports. Um, and so in many ways, the exaltation which we used to find in war and in military, oftentimes we see in the athletic realm today. And this year, Super Bowl 17 was, was a big Super Bowl. Um, it was the Patriots versus the Falcons. And the Patriots were you know, down. The Falcons were up by like 28 points or something like that. I remember because a lot of the church, a lot of you were over there at my grandparents' house and we were all watching it together. And I actually left early because I thought that the game was over and you know, nobody had ever come back by two touchdowns, let alone three touchdowns in the Super Bowl. And so I went home. And then I got home and I got a text from my brother saying, you have to turn on the game. The Patriots came back and they're in the lead and it's an overtime. And then they ended up winning. They won the Super Bowl, which is, you know, probably, you, you probably already know this. It's not only the greatest sporting event in football, but it's one of the greatest events in all of athletics in the United States. And here they won. They had this dramatic comeback. And then last week, I don't know if you saw in the news, but the Patriots were actually invited to the White House. They were invited to the White House to be honored and recognized by President Donald Trump. And part of me wonders, you know, if Trump has anything better to do at this time than, you know, honor the Patriots. But what he was honoring was their dramatic comeback, their great win in the Super Bowl. And the reason why they went to the White House was because they were honored by the highest person in the land, who right now is Donald Trump. They were honored by the president of the United States of America for what they had done. And the person they were being honored by revealed the magnitude of their accomplishment. It demonstrated just how great what they had done really was. Because here the President of the United States has invited them to the White House to exalt them, to lift them up. What if God had lifted them up instead? What if instead of Donald Trump, God had invited the patriots to heaven to exalt them and lift them up for the great accomplishment that they had achieved? That would be greater because, it is being, because they're being exalted by a greater person. And here in America, there is no higher person than Donald Trump. But there is a higher person in the universe, and that's God. And God didn't exalt the patriots, but he did exalt Jesus Christ. And I want you to see the greatness of the exaltation just in this first verse. By who Jesus was exalted by. By God himself. This is the God. This is the one who created all things. Who sustains all things at every minute who not a single atom moves apart from his sovereign decree. And it's this God that exalted Christ. It's this God that lifted him up and that praised him. This should show you, at least give you a small glimpse right now of the glory and greatness of his exaltation. 
Who cares to be exalted by anyone else? Who cares to be exalted by Donald Trump? Jesus is exalted by God. No one else matters. How cool it is, you know, it is cool that the Patriots got to go to the White House and you know, Donald Trump actually took time out of his business schedule to acknowledge them. But how much greater to be exalted by God himself. So was Jesus. Not only that, but God only exalts those who are worthy of being exalted. God can only do that which is worth doing. He never makes mistakes. He doesn't honor people who don't deserve to be honored. If he honors someone, they deserve it. If he exalts someone, they better be worthy of it. And so he exalts Christ. Leaving it without question that this man, this Jesus, he did something, he is someone that is worth being exalted by God. And not just being exalted by God, but being exalted to the highest. What did he do to deserve the exaltation of God? Let's go back to verse 9. It says, therefore, God exalted him. And the therefore is therefore his humiliation. It's therefore verses 6 through 8. Let me read it to you again. God exalted him for the work of redemption, for the work that he accomplished in his, in his humiliation. Going back to verses 6, Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is what made this man, Jesus Christ, worthy of God's exaltation. It's the gospel. It's the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, actually incarnated himself into human flesh, and that he walked around on this globe as a man like you and me, and that he grew up and he learned things and he made mistakes and he fell and he cut his knee and then he worked hard to make a living. And then this man lived a perfectly righteous life. He kept every single commandment that we failed to keep and then he died the death that we deserve to die. All of the punishment which God should have poured out on you, he poured out on Christ instead. And Christ hung on that cross. It says that he became obedient even to death on a cross and the reason was a cross is because that's where you deserve to be. It was because you deserve to hang on that tree. You deserve to have your skin flogged. You deserve to have the nails through your hands. And you deserve to suffocate there in the morning sun. That's what you deserved. And actually, in part, that's a lie because it really only represented what you deserved, which is an eternity of conscious torment in hell. That's the wrath you deserve. That's the wrath that Jesus took for you. And that is why God exalted him. Because of this great work of redemption that he accomplished and so God's exaltation is the most dramatic indication possible that Jesus has completed his mission, that he did what he set out to do, that he really did save your soul. And so God has exalted him. You know, in the Super Bowl, it would be the Super Bowl trophy. It would be the rings that are given out to each player to show that they have won the Super Bowl. They've won the greatest sporting event in history. What shows that Jesus accomplished his mission, that he won the war against Satan for God's glory? It's that he was exalted to the highest place. And God's exaltation is the fitting reward for Jesus' glorious work. But we have to be careful here. The object of God's exaltation is not the work of Christ. It's Christ himself. It says, therefore God exalted him. 
Not therefore God exalted what he did, or God exalted the gospel, or God exalted salvation. It's God exalted him. And so how glorious is this man, the object it's the object of God's exaltation. It's demonstrated by the exaltation itself. You know, in the Super Bowl, you have so much fanfare. There's music, and there's celebration, there's confetti, and there's fireworks, and you have F-18s flying overhead, and there's lots of drinking and music because it's such a huge accomplishment. You know, the celebration, the exaltation reveals how great it was that they did. And so what is this exaltation of Christ that reveals that this person is so glorious as he is? Well, the word exalted here, when it says, therefore God exalted, in Greek it's huper upsao, and you're probably wondering why I would say that to you, because I'm sure it means nothing, but the main point is that it's a compound word. It's, an actu- it's actually a combination of two words, and the first word, hooper, is the same where we get hyper. It really means hyper-exalted, or super-exalted, or uber-exalted. Properly means to elevate beyond to super exalt, to lift up beyond measure, to make exceedingly high, most high, the highest. Not just great, not just the greatest, but the greatest of all time. What did he lift Christ up to? He lifted him up to, read in verse 9, to the highest place, to heaven. Where is this highest place? You know, when we think of, when we think of heaven, oftentimes we'll try and, and spiritualize Christ's ascension We think that, you know, he went there and it represents the place that he went. But remember, in Acts 1, verses 9 through 11, they said this. This is talking about his ascension now. We looked at this last week. Luke writes, After Jesus said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus' physical body went to a real place. Heaven is a very real place. And Jesus ascended there and a cloud hid him from their sight. That means that somewhere in the spiritual realm, high above us in the sky, Jesus is seated and he is reigning. And you can't see him, but he really is there. He's in a very real place in this universe, reigning right now. Where do kings reign? We don't have kings anymore, but you know where they used to reign. They used to reign from a throne. What was so significant about a throne? It was that it was the most prominent seat in the land. From the throne, you could look out on everything else. You were above everything else, and it demonstrated your rule and your sovereignty over everything below you. And so Jesus is raised to the highest heaven. He's raised to the highest place. And it's that same place that he says in John chapter 14, verses 2 through 3, that he went to prepare a place for you. It's a very real place that he's at. And by God's grace through him, you will be there with him in that place. And at the same time, it is spiritually and governmentally the highest place. Highest place is reserved for who? It's reserved for God. The highest place in the universe, the highest place in the government of this universe is God's place. And that's the place that Jesus is taken to. The first martyr, Stephen, physically saw this with his own eyes. Remember when he was dying in Acts chapter 7, verses 55 through 56. We read, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven as he was being stoned and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
Verse 56, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. There is God seated on his throne as heaven, and there is Jesus standing right by his side in the highest place with the highest one. There is no higher place than the highest. It says he exalted him to the highest heaven. There's no higher place than that. It is the highest. It's the dwelling and immediate presence of God. That's where Jesus abides. And there's no higher seat for any man or for any God than that seat that Jesus has. So look, it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and what? And gave him the name that is above every name. The title he gives to Christ, the name he gives to Christ, is to match the position that he gave him. And the word gave in this passage comes from the same word that we get grace. That God graced Christ with this. That he showed him favor in putting him into this position. That he bestowed this honor on him. And what is the name that he gave him? I know that, that was one of the questions that I had sent out um, earlier this week. The name that he gave Christ is the name of Lord. It is the name of God himself. There's no greater name than that. We read, you know, one of the most famous prophecies that we're going to read in just a second from Psalm 110, verse 1, is that the Lord, God says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand that I might make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God is calling somebody else God. The Lord is calling somebody else Lord. And who is that somebody else? That's Christ. That's the title that he's received. It's Lord. There is no higher name than Jesus. There is no name higher than God's name. His name is higher than Donald Trump's and Abraham Lincoln's and George Washington's. His name is greater than Albert Einstein's and Isaac Newton's and Julius Caesar's and Constantine's. His name is greater than Da Vinci's and Mozart's and Luther's and Calvin's and Edward's. His name is above all names. Let me talk to you about angels for a second. I was listening to a, a lecture by R.C. Sproul last night with Sarah. Um, he has a, a great video series online on holiness, on the importance of holiness, and he exposits Isaiah 6. And he's talking about the angels that dwell in the immediate presence of God. And he's talking about how God doesn't waste material. You know, that when he makes fish and when he makes birds, he gives fish gills because they need it in the sea, but he doesn't give birds gills because they don't need them. He makes every animal fit for his environment. And so God designed angels to be fit for their environment, to be fit for the presence of God. And what, he, what did he make them with? He made them with six wings, two to cover their eyes, two to fly, and two to cover their feet. Angels, creatures that are so incredible, if you were to see them right now, you would be tempted not to fall down to your knees and adore them and worship them. Angels, seraphim, cherubim, uh, seraphim coming from the Hebrew word which means fire, fiery creatures, beings that are greater than we can possibly begin to imagine now. Keep that in mind. I want you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1 with me. And we're going to read a passage. It does talk about these angels, about the guardians of God, his warriors who are holy and terrifying. Hebrews chapter 1, just follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. 
So he became as much superior to the angels, these amazing creatures which we just talked about, as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? He never said that to an angel. And these creatures are amazing. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Never has he said that to an angel. And again, when God brings his firstborn to the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. That is amazing. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. He's talking directly to Christ. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Angels are amazing, but they are nothing compared to Christ. The name they have is great. The position that they hold in the highest places is unfathomable, and yet Christ's name is far greater than that of the angels. If Jesus is God, was he not exalted like this before he became a man? Of course, if he's the Son of God, if he's part of the Trinity, of course he dwelt in the highest place with God. Of course he had the glory of God. So what changed for him? When God exalted him, what, what did that mean? What did that do? Well, it's pretty simple. He did have the glory of God before he became a man. But he never had that glory. Jesus, the, the man, Jesus, never had that glory until God exalted him. Jesus is a man. He's a man just like you and me. And that man was exalted to the glory of God because he is God himself. Jesus had actually prayed for this too. Um, as God, he had this glory, but not as the man, Jesus, not as the God-man, Jesus. He says in John 17, verse 5, this is him in his high priestly prayer, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The Son of God had the glory of God before he even made the world. But then this Son of God became a man too. He became the man, Jesus Christ, that we love and worship today. And it's that man, Jesus, that real historical man, Jesus, just like you and me, that was exalted to heaven, that was exalted with the glory of God. He was elevated to the status that his divine nature and his human nature deserved. He, he had it as God previously. He has it as a man now, and he has it as a man forever. He was restored to his proper place in heaven, and that is exactly where he remains today, exalted. In fact, the seating of Christ, the seating of Christ at the right hand of God is such an important theme in Scripture. It was prophesied to many times in the Old Testament, and its fulfillment is talked about many times in the New Testament, and there's actually a technical word in it for theology because it's such a common theme. It's called the session of Christ. You might have heard that before. Session, it kind of means something different today, but in the historical sense, it meant to seat, to sit down. So when we talk about the session of Christ, we talk about the seating of Christ. 
And this was prophesied to in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then he fulfills that in Hebrews 1.3, as we read. It refers to the seating, the crowning, the throning of Christ. However, Christ's exaltation consists both of the place that he was exalted to and the position he was given. They go hand in hand. For example, where does Donald Trump reside? He's the president, and he lives in the White House. The place that he dwells and the position that he has go hand in hand. The highest place of government and administration in the universe is heaven. That's where Christ was exalted to, and he was given the top role, the loftiest role. What title is higher than God? What place is higher than the highest heaven? One could not be more exalted than Jesus is today. No man has ever done this before. No man has ever done this save Christ. And it's that real man who grew up in Galilee that has done this and that has been exalted in the highest, as it says in Acts 2.33, exalted at the right hand of God. So here he is, Jesus today, is exalted at the right hand of God as we speak. What is he doing? What is he doing there? He sits on his throne and he reigns over the universe. He has received authority over all things. Ephesians 1, verses 19 through 23. Speaking of the power of God, Paul says, that power is the same as the mighty strength that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And listen to Peter as he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Everything in the universe, mankind, angel kind, Satan, demons, trees, rocks, forests, seas, planets, galaxies, everything in submission to him. He reigns over everything. He has authority over everything. And right now, as we speak, he is sitting on his throne and exercising his sovereignty over this universe. Let me read verse 9 for you one more time. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. God elevated Christ above all. He glorified him to the highest degree, not just because of what he did, but because of who he is. He did what he did because of who he is. And who he is is, is worthy of nothing but the greatest glory and the greatest honor and the greatest praise and exaltation possible, the exaltation of God, which is exactly what he asked today. I have a quote for you that I want to read. Back when I was a young boy, still kind of young, but... When I was 16 or 17, I used to get up in, in the morning to, to read and pray, and I had a, a piece of a sermon that I set as my alarm clock because I, I loved waking up to it so much. It's by Dr. S.M. Lockridge. You've probably never heard of this man before. He was an African-American preacher, an, evan an evangelist in the 1900s. Um, probably his theology wasn't very good, um, but he did preach an amazing sermon, and this is a part of that amazing sermon that is called My King, and I want to read that to you. I want you to hear these words and know that this is talking about the Jesus Christ that we're here to worship today. <clears throat> 
He says, the Bible says, my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. It's a pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burn is light. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your heart. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. That's my king. And that king is exalted to the highest place this morning. And that's where he reigns today. I can only imagine when Christ ascended, and he was exalted to the right hand of God. Can you imagine the crowds of angels that were cheering for him as he walked down the streets? The fanfare in heaven. I, can't, I think if we were there, we would probably go deaf with the cheering and the clapping and the crowds of thousands and thousands of angelic armies worshiping him and praising him. By God's grace, we'll be part of that one day. We got a glimpse of that this morning in Revelation 5, verse 11 through 12. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousands times ten thousands. That's the highest number in Greek. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Amen. His exaltation is such... In verse 10, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The name of Jesus, that name which is supreme and above all others. Biblically, somebody's name was synonymous with that person's identity. When you talked about the name of someone, you were talking about the person of someone. If you did something in someone's name, you were doing it in the spirit of that person or through that person. And it's this person, it's this name that is above all and over all and all is in subjection to him. How total is his supremacy? It's over all people. It's over all things in the universe. It says in verse 10, every knee should bow. Every single knee 
past, present, future, living, dead, white, black, religious, irreligious, ed educated, uneducated, wealthy, poor, all knees will bow to Christ. In heaven, that means all the angels and all the saints, all the seraphim, cherubim, living creatures, along with Paul and the apostles, and David, Moses, Joshua, Abraham, Augustine, Calvin, Edwards, they will all bow to Christ. And on earth, all those remaining here, the good will bow willingly, and the bad will bow by force. Trump, Putin, Kim Jong-un, Marshawn Lynch, Brad Pitt, your family, they will all bow to Christ. And all those under the earth, all those in hell, all those who have perished, all the fallen angels, Satan, demons, Jezebel, Herod, the Pharisees, Nero, Muhammad, Darwin, Hitler, Stalin, all the unregenerate in the world will bow their knees to Christ. The entire universe all living things subject to him. And if they will not bow willingly, he will break their knees and they will bow to him. Either way, his reign is absolute and all will bow before him and all will pay homage to the King Jesus Christ. Verse 11, not just physically bow, but every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. All people and all angels and all demons will know that Jesus reigns and his exaltation will be known and felt by everything in the universe. Right now he reigns, but not everyone acknowledges it. Right now he reigns, but not everyone knows. Not everyone confesses, but there will come a day when, when everything in this universe does. All will confess it with their mouths, openly and truthfully. Some willingly, some forcefully, but none will be ignorant of it on that day. None will deny. It says every tongue, every single tongue that God has ever made, from the oldest tongue to the baby tongue, they will all confess, they will all acknowledge that Jesus reigns. When Trump was elected, there were all of these not my president protests. There are all of these signs of people walking around, Trump's not my president, Trump's not my president. The reality is he is, but not everyone acknowledges it, not everyone confesses it. There will be no Jesus Christ is not my king protests on that day. There will be no resistance. There will be no rebellion. His reign will be absolute, and everybody will acknowledge it, and everybody will confess it. All together, Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is amazing to me. To what end is all of this? Look in verse 11. To the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. That's what this is all about. The purpose will be for the Father's glory, for the Father's glorification. As the Father is reflected in the Son, the Son does reflect the Father, and so the exaltation of Jesus brings glory to the Father. My dad went into the bank the other day where I work, and immediately when he walked in, people recognized he was my dad, probably because I bear his image. I reflect him, or he looks like me. I took that as a compliment. Um, that I look like, like my dad. But a son is a reflection of his father. And Jesus, the son, is a reflection of his father. And so the exaltation of the son is the exaltation of the father, and it's the glory of God. But there's something else that's amazing about this. And it's that in the father exalting the son, it makes the father proud. It brings him great joy that here is his son being exalted to the highest place, what greater joy is there for a father than to see his son succeed, than to see his son exalted? And so the father raising the son to the highest height glorifies the father more than anything else. 
And it fills his heart with pride and joy for his son. We see it all the time, you know, in sports. You'll, you know, when we were playing football, there would be dads in the stands that were beaming because their sons were doing a great job on the field. How much more so is God the Father pleased with Christ and proud of Christ for the great work that he has done and the most amazing person that he is? Christ's lordship, his session, his reigning, his return, his exaltation is all to this end, the glory of God the Father. So I want to talk to you now in the last few minutes before we close about what your relationship is like with this person. This is how Jesus is and lives today. And so the question for you is, what is your relationship like with this man? He is a real man who really lives and who really reigns right now. And every single person has a relationship with him. It doesn't mean it's a good one, but everyone has a relationship with him. And so I want you to think for a moment and examine yourself and contemplate what is your relationship like. He is Lord of all people, whether you like that or not. He's Lord of those who love him. He's Lord of those who hate him. And all will bow to him on that last day. But let me make something very clear. Jesus is either your best friend or he's your worst enemy. He's either your, sa- he's either your savior or he's your death sentence. And his reign is absolute. He will be either one of those for you. Remember, Jesus said to the disciples, he called himself the cornerstone. He called himself the rock. The precious cornerstone that is the foundation of the church, but he's the same rock that will break all of those who rebel against him. He's the stumbling rock, the rock of offense that they will fall over and will be crushed by. He's the precious cornerstone to to some and and the stumbling stone of death to others. And apart from yielding to his lordship now, you are in such great danger. Yes, he will come back and he will crush your head under his feet. It's insane. It's insane for you to resist Christ. You can't resist him. You can't stop him. He will win because he already has won. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a, sep- as, a, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Verse 46, then they, the goats, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. We read from Psalm 2 this morning, verses 8 through 9. God says to Jesus, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. Then he says what? You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. What vivid imagery of a clay pot being dashed to the ground, being shattered in pieces, crushed, disintegrated. Imagine it being smashed with a bat. That represents you apart from Christ. Jesus will come back and he will smash you like a clay pot unless you bow your knee to him today. This king is coming back in glory. He's coming back to conquer. And if you are not with him, you are against him. He says in Luke eleven twenty three, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. These are terrifying words. You have to ask yourself, are you with this king? Is he your king? Because if he is not, you are his enemy. And you cannot hide and you cannot run. He will destroy you. 
to be against him in the end is eternal punishment for you. And many Christians today have good reason to question whose side they're really on. They have good reason to look at their life and say, who functionally, practically is my king? Who do I really bow down to? Do I bow down to Christ or do I bow down to money? Do I bow down to the king of the universe or do I bow down to comfort or to my friends or to my, or to my job or to my hobbies? Who is your king? Where do you spend the most time and energy and money? Is it on Christ? Are your thoughts focused on him primarily or are they focused somewhere else? Who reigns over your life? What dictates your decisions? Is it the sovereignty of Jesus or is it something else? Even if it's something good. I can tell you this. If you do not bow to him on earth, you will bow to him under the earth. And that you can be absolutely certain of. The solution for you, if you haven't submitted to his lordship, then cry out for mercy today. Today is the day of salvation. You don't want to kid yourself with something like this. Do you really have a relationship with Christ? Have you really entered into a relationship with this person? And don't say, I don't know, or it's hard, or it's mysterious, or it's kind of a gray area. It's not. You know if you have a relationship with this person. Ask yourself. Be honest with yourself. And if you don't, repent and throw yourself on him and bow your knee to him today. Trust in him with all your heart, and he is a gracious and merciful king, and he will save you. He will take that punishment that you deserve and give you his own righteousness. Ask for him to change your heart so that you will willingly bow or he will force you to the ground when he comes again. If you are saved, though, the story couldn't be more different. If you submitted to his lordship, if you bow to him on earth, then you will bow to him above. You will bow to him in heaven and praise him forever and ever with all the angels and all the saints before you. You are his child. You are his best friend. You are his sheep. And he is your husband. You are his bride. You are infinitely and dearly loved by this exalted man, by this king of our universe. And if you are saved, you've seen your heart changed. You were once a rebel who fought against this king, who raged like the kings of the nations in Psalm 2. But now you serve him, and you bow to him, and you worship him, and you love him. You love this man who died for him, who died for you. And you know him personally. You speak to him through prayer, and he speaks to you through his word. You have conversation together. You live for him. You would die for him. He is truly your king. And how amazing it is to have a real relationship with Jesus. You have a relationship with this man. There is no greater man to have a relationship with. You know, there's a, a Rich Mullins song. It's called Here in America, and I love one of the lines in it. And he's talking about how amazing it is that, quote, the king of Israel loves me here in America. That me, uh, a boy who grew up in Scotts Valley, California, who got his degree in business and works for a bank down the street, that the king of Israel, the holy king of Israel, actually loves me here today in America? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. There is no greater enjoyment for you. And we talk about how cool it is to run to celebrities. There was a person here at this church a while ago. He was a name dropper. I'm sure you probably, you know, you've all met people like this. Oh, I saw, you know, Tom Cruise down at the street today. Or I ran to Selena Gomez. She was on her way to a concert tonight. You know, it brings some kind of glory. They boast and somehow, you know, have a relationship with this famous person. There is no greater person to have a relationship with than Jesus Christ. 
be a name dropper for that name, for that name which is above all other names. Who cares if you know Tom Cruise? Who cares if you know Selena Gomez? Say, I know Jesus Christ. Drop that name and boast in that. Highest glory, highest joy comes from personally knowing and being known by Jesus the highest. How could you not want to know him more? I mean, we talked about in the beginning, you know, just based on what he's done in the world, I'm I'm wondering how can these people not want to know more about him? But now we're not just talking about knowing about him, we're talking about knowing him. We're talking about knowing him personally, about having a real relationship with him. You should want to be more intimate with him than anyone else to be best friends with him. This exalted king is 100% dedicated to having the deepest, most wonderful, most fantastic relationship with you possible. And how foolish of us, how foolish of us to neglect it. You know, we talked about the power of prayer this morning. I don't think you know how powerful it is to have the ear of Jesus Christ. Imagine if you are friends with Donald Trump. You might be able to accomplish a lot. Perhaps you could influence him Um, towards tax reform or towards better gun laws or to end abortion or something like that. To have a powerful friend means that you have such great influence and power over the way the world works. You don't have Donald Trump as your friend. You have Jesus Christ as your friend. Go talk to him. He can change anything that he wants to change. You have his ear. And think about this. This man has died for you. He's given you everything. What else would he withhold from you? There is nothing more encouraging than the reign of Christ. This tells us, Paul tells us this in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. The author of Hebrews tells us that. That because he is already exalted, we will not grow weary, we will not lose heart. You know, we can't even call it hope because it's certain that we've already won. Even more so, his, his exaltation, and this is perhaps the biggest, greatest source of joy and amazement for you, his exaltation, guys, is your exaltation. His exaltation is your exaltation. His victory, his seating, his reigning is yours. The good news of the gospel is that everything that Christ did, we do through him. We live perfectly through him. We die the death we deserve through him. We rise from the dead through him, and we are exalted through him, and we reign through him today. So when we read in this passage today that God exalted him to the highest place, we rejoice not just for Christ, but for ourselves, because we know that his exaltation is our own exaltation. In fact, God's word discusses his exaltation almost as much as it discusses our own. In Ephesians 2.6, Paul says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You can't get this. You don't get this. This is past tense. He has raised you up. He has seated you in the heavenly places, and you are reigning with him right now as we speak. You are. You are more exalted than Donald Trump. Do you believe that? You have more authority than Donald Trump. You are reigning more than he ever has or ever will apart from Christ. You don't know your glory. You really don't know it. We talked about the glory of the angels earlier. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.3, Do you not know that we will judge angels one day? That you will reign over the angels the same way that Christ does. That just as the name that he received is infinitely better than theirs, so too will yours be. 
And not just angels, but all things, all of creation. Christ's supremacy is your supremacy. We read in Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 8, it is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Son of man, that you care for him. You made them a lower, little lower than the angels, yet you crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. That's your feet that he's talking about. He has put everything under your feet. God has left nothing that is not subject to them. And yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. End quote. He crowned Christ with glory and honor and put all things under him. And through him, the same is true of us. We are crowned and above all things. You don't know your glory. You're greater than the angels. Christ's exaltation is your exaltation. This is breathtaking. This is life-changing. This is incomprehensible. Just as you don't get who he truly is, you don't get who you truly are apart from Christ. When I was a kid, I used to look at somebody like the president and think, you know, deep down in myself, I wanted to have a role like that. I wanted to be in some kind of important position. But I always felt like that was impossible because I knew I'm never going to be president. I'm never going to be president of the United States. I'm never going to have an important role like that. And that was kind of saddening for me. Part of me really wanted to have that. I was wrong. I couldn't be more wrong. I will never be president, but I will reign over the president. And not just reign over the president, I will reign over all of creation. Because Christ reigns and I reign with him and I reign through him. And so to you, and so do you if you trust in him. If you're saved, the same is true of you. Not just for a four-year term or an eight-year term, but for eight million years and forever and ever and ever and ever. We are all co-heirs and kings with Christ. Do you see yourselves like that? Do you see each other like that? The only reason you don't is because we're so deceived still. What great hope and joy. Revelation 3.21, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne, so we will sit down with Christ. We are victorious through him. Today, Jesus reigns. Today, we reign with him. Do you exalt Christ as he deserves to be exalted? The answer to that is a resounding no. You don't adore him. You don't worship him. You don't fear him. You don't trust him. You don't love him as much as he deserves to be. And so I hope that you will see him more as he is today and that it will compel you to a more proper and right worship of him. May you bow down like the rest of mankind and acknowledge with your tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. And to what end? to the same end that Christ is exalted, to the same end that we will exalt him, and to the same end that we are exalted through him, and that's to the glory of the Father. The same purpose of his exaltation is the same purpose of yours. It's to God's glory. And as God is reflected in the Son and takes pride in the Son, so too does God take pride in you and is exalted through you and glorified through your exaltation. There were kids on my football team who only played football because they wanted to make their fathers proud. And it was sad because many of them who were just playing for that weren't good at football. And so they sat on the bench, and they went the entire year, you know, playing only a little bit when they played not doing very well. And so they go without the pride of their father. That will not happen to you in Christ. God the Father is so infinitely proud of you through Christ, and he is glorified and exalting you and raising you to the highest place with him. And the end of your exaltation, the purpose of it, is the same as it was for Jesus. It's his own glory. And so all glory be to God the Father, who has exalted the man, Christ Jesus, and who has exalted us with him. Let's pray.
Father, we can't thank you for this. We can't be grateful enough. We can't have enough gratitude in our hearts. We can hardly even understand what it is that you've told us this morning from your word. And so we ask that you would come mightily into our hearts, that you would break open the hardness of our minds, and that you would cause us to see you as you are today and to see ourselves as we are with you, reigning with you. Lord, please cause this to bring us to our knees, to confess with our mouth that you are Lord, and to by our grace worship you as you deserve to be worshiped. And for any of us, Father, who are not saved, we ask that you would convict us today of our rebellion, that we would turn from our resistance, and that we would turn to you and bow our knees, and by your grace trust in you and be saved. We ask that you to glorify yourself as we continue to sing to you right now. It's in your name we pray. Amen.